My name's Dan. Uh, and uh, yes, it's great to, to see you this morning, especially if you're visiting us. Uh, it's a joy for us to welcome you. I want to tell you a tale of three sisters this morning. Three sisters. Admittedly, they've got rather odd names, uh, but you know, just bear with me. They're kind of nicknames, really. Uh, so there's, first of all, there's Confused. This is Confused. Uh, oh, actually, I'm going to come back to Confused in a minute. There's Confused, Confined, and Consumed. They're their names. Confused, Confined, and Consumed. And they're three sisters, odd names, aren't they? Um, who'd have thought it? Who are on a summer camp together. They've gone away to a youth camp over the summer, and uh, it was one week long, and they knew that they'd go home at the end of it. Okay? They're at a summer camp, they know they're going to go home at the end. He's confused. She's on the camp, and uh, she didn't really like to think about going home. She was put off by all the conflict. Confined said that she'd heard the camp leader said was, Dad was going to drop by uh, on Saturday to take them home. Consumed said that Dad had told her that he'd swing by after a week. Well, technically, that would be Monday, not Saturday. Which was it? Was it five to six days, or was it seven days a week? Just con- confused, as you might be now, confused, just hated all this conflict. Which was it? And also, how can he drop in and swing by? What, what are they talking about? And so Confused didn't like to think about uh, going home. She found all this conflict confusing. She didn't like the arguments about it. And so she just didn't think about going home. Confined, on the other hand, well, here's Confined. She managed to forget about home altogether. It was as if she she didn't know anything about what home was like. She'd heard people occasionally talk about going home, but it didn't mean anything to her. And so she never thought about it. She lived as if camp was all there was. Her thinking was confined to her current life at camp. She had no idea about the joy she could have been looking forward to when she got home. And then there was Consumed. Consumed was so happy at camp. She liked the boys too much. She must have had at least five boys following her around wherever she went, wanting to hang out with her. She wasn't interested when mum or dad would message the girls and see how they're getting on. She wanted to be out with her mates. She loved the freedom of being, able to, of being away, of getting up in the middle of the night and sneaking down to the woods while the leaders were still sleeping. And that's not a suggestion for anyone who might be going on any camps any time. It's not a you know, terrible thing to do. Uh, but she loved doing it, consumed, loved doing that. She wasn't interested in thinking about going home. She was consumed with camp. Do either of those girls remind you of anyone? Maybe you're a bit like one of them, or a mixture of all three. I'm not talking about a summer camp, of course, but our hope of heaven, or whatever you want to call it. Maybe you identify with confused. You don't like the conflict that goes around talking about the end times. Or maybe with confined, you just don't think about it, you don't really know much about it, so you're not excited about it. Or or even consumed, you love camp so much, you love everything in this life so much that uh, you're not really interested in thinking about it. As a fourth category you might be in, unlike any of these sisters, uh, that's perhaps you're sceptical of the whole thing. Perhaps you're like a friend of the sisters uh, we could call him uh, Contrary, just because he fits with their names, or we could call him Cynical Cyril, whatever you prefer. But uh, here's Cynical Cyril, I think that sounds better. Um, and Contrary is obviously, I'm just trying to force the names to sound the same. Uh, but he thinks that camp is all there is. 
This is it. None of them are going to any sort of home, whatever home is. He just thinks that's all there is. Well, uh, perhaps if you're like cynical Cyril, uh, want to kind of begin by just uh, trying to sort of suggest something for you to think about. Although this is helpful for all of us, I hope. Uh, I want to look at four things this morning. And the first one is that the resurrection is real. Looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll come on to that in a bit. But some people here this morning might be cynical or sceptical. You don't believe it. That doesn't come as a surprise. You're not the first person to question the truth of the resurrection. For a start, it's a strange thing to us, isn't it? It's outside of anything we have or ever will experience. So by definition, it's unusual. It's odd. And then if you throw in the catalogue of thoughts about what happens after death, and it gets even more bizarre. Do I know what's going on? Will I be conscious? Will I come back as that fly I once killed? Am I going to be able to communicate with those I leave behind? Or perhaps uh, think about uh, Coldplay in uh, in a song, Adventure of a Lifetime. If we've only got this life, this adventure, perhaps that's all it is. We've just got this life. Differing views about the afterlife are nothing new. Even in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders were split into two camps. One believed there was life after death. The others didn't. And these were the religious leaders. So if you're sceptical... You're not alone, and I'm not surprised. But let me read to you an argument put forward by a man called Paul, one of the leaders of the early church. And you can find this on page uh, 1156. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a letter in the New Testament part of the Bible, page 1156. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 20. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Now I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. I'll just pause there for a minute. You might think you're sceptical. Paul was so sceptical about Jesus and the people who followed him that he was taking action to get rid of them. This is what he refers to in verses 8 to 10. He didn't deserve to be an apostle because he persecuted God's church. He was trying to kill them. That's how sceptical he was. Then he experienced the risen Jesus firsthand. As he said in verse 8, last of all he appeared to me also. You can read that story later on in Acts chapter 9 if you want to. So Paul, who'd been a hardened sceptic, a violent, aggressive sceptic, 
saw Jesus alive. After he knew that Jesus had been crucified and his body laid in a tomb, he saw him alive. But he didn't just see Jesus alive, he met him. And he heard from him. And he spoke with him. And remember, Paul, or Saul as he was called back then, wasn't some desperate disciple who had hallucinations of the Jesus he wanted to see. Paul was in the height of his persecution of the early church. And the risen Jesus stopped him in his tracks. And Paul reminds the church in Corinth and us through this letter that he wasn't the only one to see Jesus alive. Cephas, called Peter, saw him. Jesus' 12 closest followers saw him. More than 500 followers of Jesus saw him. Paul couldn't be sceptical after his experience of meeting the risen Jesus. I get that you might be sceptical, though. Well, in addition to all these evidences, we might, all these appearances, we might also consider the evidence of Jesus' empty tomb. If he was dead, where is his body? The disciples didn't have it. They wouldn't get past the Roman guard at the tomb. And even if they did, it's extremely unlikely they'd be able to convince anyone or everyone. As if everyone was just, as, just, was just gullible back then. Let alone die for what they knew to be a lie. The authorities didn't have Jesus' body either. If they did, they would have produced it to stop this uprising. But they couldn't produce the body of Jesus because they didn't have it. When you examine the evidence, there's very little room for scepticism about the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection, by the way, is a word which means rising to life from death. When we speak of the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of those who trust in him, the life which they rise to is a different order of life from which they died. Resurrection doesn't equal resuscitation. If you, I know this is impossible, this would happen, but if you died of boredom right now, and uh, I stopped speaking for, for a few moments and, and came over and resuscitated you, don't, don't think too long on that, you might get scared, um, then you'd only return to the life which you'd just left. And if I carried on uh, speaking, you may well become bored again and die again of boredom. It could be a, a long cycle. Resurrection, on the other hand, is to be raised to an entirely new order of life. A new kind of life. We'll think more about that later. But as we'll see, the Bible talks about the resurrection, an event in the future, a future occasion to be looked forward to when God will raise to new life all those who have trusted in Jesus. And those who haven't trusted in Jesus will also be raised, but raised to face his judgment. But this time, uh, for for now, let's uh, pick up Paul's argument from verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits are those who have fallen asleep. It makes fair logical sense, doesn't it? If Jesus has risen from the dead, then it follows that others can. But Paul's saying more than that, though. He's not just saying that the resurrection of Jesus leaves the door open, uh, for, of the door of possibility open for others to rise. He's saying that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that others will rise. Jesus is the first fruits. That's a, a really important word in verse 20. An important biblical image, an agricultural image. It's a term used in agricultural and farming uh, communities at the time for the first instalment of the harvest, the first bit of the harvest that pledges, that guarantees that the rest is going to follow. The rest of the harvest is going to come. More of the same kind of crop is going to come. And the resurrection of Christ contains a pledge from God that he will raise us with Christ in the same way. Feel free to to worship in your heart as you reflect on that. The resurrection of Christ contains a pledge from God that he will raise us with Christ in the same way. And even believers, we struggle to believe this sometimes. I'm not really just addressing sceptical, cynical uh, people. I'm addressing all of us because sometimes we struggle to believe this. I know sometimes I sometimes think, oh, that's a bit unrealistic, isn't it, really? But it's true. The resurrection is real. And the first fruits, the risen Christ, is that guarantee, that promise to us. Perhaps especially as we face older years and, and we kind of begin to doubt, doubts come in as we, as we get frail. We can hold on to the first fruits, that guarantee, that promise of the resurrection. The resurrection is real. And the resurrection is a gift to be received from God by his grace. Uh, A scholar called Anthony Thistleton writes, At death, humankind, whether or not Christian believers, has nothing to offer. Christians simply receive a gift of sheer grace, in accordance with which God, as sovereign creator, raises them to life in a transformed mode of existence. He goes on to quote another guy who talks about death uh, as uh, being this kind of the, the, the deadliness of death, the, the, the emptiness, the nothingness compared to the promised life that we have in Christ. I wonder this morning if we're holding on, looking forward to receiving that gift. Do you want that gift? Do you want to receive it? Do you want to know the certain hope of being raised to life with Christ? Do you want to experience the promised life instead of the deadliness of death. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, we, therefore, uh, we, are, we were therefore buried with him with Christ through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's an important link there. That is that those who are raised with Christ, who are united with him in a resurrection like his, are those who are united with him in his death, those who are trusting in his death for them, in his death on the cross. We'll be united with him in his death, 
we'll be united with him in his resurrection. Let's uh, move on and think about uh, our hope is certain. Let's come back to our three sisters. I come back to confused. Uh, do you remember confused? Uh, do you remember her issue? Uh, she avoided thinking about going home because she was put off about all the conflicts, about the details. Maybe you identify with confused. Maybe you avoid thinking about all the conflicts. You avoid thinking about the resurrection because you've heard the different views. Perhaps many different views. Perhaps you've been a bit awkward when there's heated arguments going on. Perhaps you've even seen people go off the rails over the details of Christ's return. At the beginning of the summer, uh, we were reflecting as elders that maybe we'd neglected to teach as much as we should about the resurrection. And maybe that has an element of not wanting to stir up conflict. So perhaps we avoid it. And, uh, And when we do avoid it, when we do avoid thinking about the resurrection, we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves of something. We're we're trying to live a a deficient uh, Christian life, deprived of vital nutrients. And so I want to remind us all this morning, myself included, that our hope is certain. Yes, there's different views on some of the details, but there's much we can be certain about, and we should think about these things. The resurrection formed an important part of the preaching of the early church, by which I don't just mean uh, what was said to gathered congregations but what was part of the message of the gospel that that everyone uh, scattered and spread wherever God sent them. Acts 4 records Peter and John getting into trouble uh, because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Acts 17 records that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus himself spoke of the resurrection perhaps most powerfully in John chapter 11 where he linked his teaching to his actual raising to life of a man who'd been dead and buried in a tomb for four days. Jesus said to the dead man's sister, Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The early church weren't avoiding thinking about the resurrection. Far from it, the resurrection was their hope that they clung to. Uh, Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is on page 1161. And uh, look at verse 14 and verses 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Paul instructed the church of the Thessalonians to encourage one another by speaking about our hope of resurrection. This isn't something that was not thought about in the early church. Uh, You don't need to turn to this, but you can if you want. It's in page 1188 uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a, loud, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't live an impoverished Christian life, avoiding thinking about your certain hope. Don't be, like, confused. How ridiculous that she didn't look forward to all that was in store for her at home because she was, didn't like the, the different views about how she'd get there when Dad would come to pick her up. How ridiculous that she lived an impoverished time at camp. Don't be like her. There are some things about which we can be certain. We can be certain that Jesus will come to this earth again. He spoke of that John records the promise uh, of Jesus in chapter 14 of his gospel. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, Jesus said. Those who knew Jesus also preached that Jesus would return, as we've already seen. We can be certain that Jesus will return. We can be certain that we should be ready. Jesus taught uh, much about our readiness, being prepared for him to come back. We can be certain that also we should be prepared for a wait, for a long wait. We can be certain that he'll take us to be with him. We can be certain that he will right all all that is wrong and make all things new. We can be certain that we'll reign with him in his new creation, this ultimate fullness of life. We'll come on to that in a moment. We can be certain that he will live among us as our God. Many of us uh, will treasure the vision described in chapter 21 of Revelation. Um, and uh, do, do take a look at this. It's right near the end of the Bible, um, page 1,249, uh, right near the end, 1,249, Revelation 21. I'm just going to read from verse 5. Sorry, from verse 1, but the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, We're just going to move on to, I'm going to comment on those verses in a second. Just as we see that resurrection life is desirable. Revelation 21 is the kind of thing that confined could do with reading. Remember her? She was ignorant of her time at home. She didn't really thought about it. She didn't know what to expect, and so she wasn't excited about it. She didn't look forward to it, because she didn't know how look forward toable it is, if I can make up a word. Maybe if you do think about it, 
your thoughts go something like, well, when I get a bit bored uh, lying around on my cloud, uh, joining in with this kind of endless church service, accompanied by not this kind of, you know, the great Portsmouth band, uh, but instead just some angels playing harps or whatever. When I get a bit bored uh, living an eternity like that, perhaps that's how your thoughts go. Maybe, again, we haven't, the church haven't spoken as much as we could about it. Uh, I'm sure it's partly down to us that we're not uh, so excited as we should be. But uh, I wonder if Revelation 21 is a key antidote uh, for for when we think like confined, when we don't think about our life to come. Revelation 21 contains a new heaven and a new earth imagery. The creator creating everything new. Picture the beauty of this creation at its very best. What is it that you kind of think, wow, that's, that's amazing. I could just stay here for ages and, and just watch that, look at that, drink that in. This creation at its very best, the new creation will be better. I enjoy seeing parts of this creation that we don't often see. Uh, perhaps like if I go snorkeling uh, somewhere where the water's a bit clearer than here, not, not in the itching. Um, and, uh, and you kind of see these kind of amazing creatures, colourful creatures, swimming around. And you think, wow, God's created these things to, to enjoy their beauty. And then you see on, on television uh, uh, images of these kind of luminous fish, or whatever they're called. Um, they're probably not called fish, sorry for any marine biologists. But these things that are kind of really, really deep in the sea, and they're kind of these beautiful, amazing colours, and no one ever sees them. But God's created these things because he delights in, in their beauty and enjoying them. God creates for enjoyment. We've somewhat spoiled this creation. We've made a mess of it. But God is creating everything new. And this time, we'll be able to fully enjoy it as it will be made to be enjoyed. And key to that enjoyment is our relationship with the God who creates it. Revelation 21 contains the image of astonishing intimacy. The image that the relationship between Jesus and those who trust in him is like the relationship between a bride, a husband, and a bride. That Jesus will delight in his people. Revelation 21 gives the mind-blowing picture, and I'm not exaggerating that this is a mind-blowing picture, of God dwelling with his people. If you follow the storyline of the Bible, you'll know that in the beginning God created everything. And then he created humans to enjoy a relationship with him. He was present with them. He walked with them. He talked with them. And then they kind of said, no, no thanks, and turned their back on him. And so that relationship has been broken. And there's a storyline of separation. Mankind kicked out of the garden. If you know the story, don't worry if you don't. But mankind separated from the presence of God. And then there's this temple system throughout the the whole kind of Old Testament part of the Bible. This temple system that screams, you can't approach God's presence. You can't live with God where God lives. It screams, we must be kept separate. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus says near the beginning of his time, uh, near the beginning of his teaching ministry, Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days I'll rise it again. And everyone's a bit confused because he's referring to himself as the kind of true place where suddenly we start to see that God 
can indeed live among a people who rejected him. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, you read in the, in the Gospels this account that the curtain in the temple, that barrier, that thing which said, keep out, keep separate, that curtain is torn. And the New Testament explains that the way into the presence of God is made open. That's a, a little a mini Bible overview. But now in Revelation 21, perhaps the voice of God himself, because it's from the throne, says, look... God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their gods. It's extremely significant that towards the end of this chapter, John recalls, I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is astonishing. God dwelling among his people, that relationship fully restored in this new creation. And as we uh, read already in Thessalonians, we're encouraged not to be uninformed about this, not to be ignorant about the resurrection, like the sister confined. Wouldn't you rather live a, a joy-filled life, looking forward to enjoying the fullest of life in the new creation, in the presence of the, an abundant blessing of God? Joy rooted in our eternal hope can be held on to through tough times in this life. Not that we should only think of our eternal hope when we're going through tough times. Uh, that would be to completely misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's possible for something of this joy, this eternal focused joy, even in the face of pain and loss, even with longing and aching hearts, even in this life, which is only temporary, it's possible to know this joy. This is captured powerfully in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's on page 1217, verses 3 to 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour. When Jesus Christ is revealed, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Resurrection life is desirable. Meditate on it. Fix your mind on it. Fix your eyes on it. Look forward to it. Rejoice in the hope of it. Comfort yourself with it. Encourage others to cling on for it. And finally, just quickly see that resurrection life is better. You remember consumed. She was so happy being at camp. She was so into all that camp could offer that she wasn't interested in what would come at home. And uh, perhaps we can live like that. I'm sure most of us in different ways live like that. We can remember stories of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12, for example, encouraging us to, to store up treasure 
in heaven, to store up treasure in heaven, to focus our, our lives there, not on storing up things in this world. Now, 1 Peter carries on to kind of encourage us to set our minds on this hope. And there's much that kind of encourages us in how we're to live in this life now. Now, we haven't got, got time now, but the hope of eternity, the hope of this resurrection should affect how we live today, should affect how I react with people in the week, tomorrow, Tuesday, should reflect how I respond to the different challenges I might face, should reflect, should affect rather, how I live my life. We're to, to be citizens now uh, of this uh, future hope. But uh, I'm going to just finish praying a prayer uh, from, from 1 Thessalonians, actually a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians, uh, a prayer there as the band come up and, uh, and lead us in some songs just celebrating this hope that we have. And uh, perhaps um, just before I pray, I'll leave a, a couple of moments of silence. Uh, maybe you want to, to pray something personally. Perhaps you want to ask uh, God to, to kind of, well, maybe you want to ask forgiveness and uh, maybe you want to ask God to give you more excitement, uh, to give you greater understanding and insight into the hope that he calls you to. Uh, maybe uh, you're grieving yourself at the moment and uh, grieving a loved one and you want to just uh, reflect on that and have space uh, to reflect on, on the hope that we can have. Uh, however you want to, to use this time, I'll just be silent for a moment and uh, then I'll pray and then the band can lead us. May the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.